Section thirty one Vespasian Part two of The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Vespasian, Part 2, Paragraphs 8 to 25. Returning now to Rome, under these auspices, and with a great reputation, after enjoying a triumph for victories over the Jews, he added eight consulships to his former one. He likewise assumed the censorship, and made it his principal concern, during the whole of his government, first to restore order in the state, which had been almost ruined, and was in a tottering condition, and then to improve it. The soldiers, one part of them emboldened by victory, and the other smarting with the disgrace of their defeat, had abandoned themselves to every species of licentiousness and insolence. Nay, the provinces too, and free cities, and some kingdoms in alliance with Rome, were all in a disturbed state. He therefore disbanded many of Vitellius's soldiers, and punished others, and so far was he from granting any extraordinary favours to the sharers of his success, that it was late before he paid the gratuities due to them by law. That he might let slip no opportunity of reforming the discipline of the army, upon a young man's coming much perfumed to return him thanks for having appointed him to command a squadron of horse, he turned away his head in disgust, and giving him this sharp reprimand, I had rather you smelt of garlic, revoked his commission. When the men belonging to the fleet, who travelled by turns from Ostia and Puteoli to Rome, petitioned for an addition to their pay, under the name of shoe-money, thinking that it would answer little purpose to send them away without a reply, he ordered them for the future to run barefooted, and so they have done ever since. He deprived of their liberties Achaia, Lycia, Rhodes, Byzantium, and Samos, and reduced them into the form of provinces, Thrace also, and Cilicia, as well as Comagene, which at that time had been under the government of kings. He stationed some legions in Cappadocia, on account of the frequent inroads of the barbarians, and instead of a Roman knight, appointed as governor of it a man of consular rank. The ruins of houses which had been burnt down long before, being a great de-site to the city, he gave leave to any one who would to take possession of the void ground and build upon it, if the proprietors should hesitate to perform the work themselves. He resolved upon building the capitol, and was the foremost to put his hand to clearing the ground of the rubbish, and removed some of it upon his own shoulder. And he undertook likewise to restore the three thousand tables of brass which had been destroyed in the fire which consumed the capitol, searching in all quarters for copies of those curious and ancient records, in which were contained the decrees of the Senate, almost from the building of the city, as well as the acts of the people, relative alliances, treaties, and privileges granted to any person. He likewise erected several new public buildings, namely the Temple of Peace near the Forum, that of Claudius on the Coelian Mount, which had been begun by Agrippina, but almost entirely demolished by Nero, and an amphitheatre in the middle of the city, upon finding that Augustus had projected such a work. 
he purified the senatorian and equestrian orders, which had been much reduced by the havoc made amongst them at several times, and was fallen into disrepute by neglect. He expelled the most unworthy, he chose in their room the most honourable persons in Italy and the provinces, and to let it be known that these two orders differed not so much in privileges as in dignity, he declared publicly, when some altercation passed between a senator and a Roman knight, that senators ought not to be treated with scurrilous language, unless they were the aggressors, and then it was fair and lawful to return it. The business of the courts had prodigiously accumulated, partly from old lawsuits which, on account of the interruption that had been given to the course of justice, still remained undecided, and partly from the accession of new suits arising out of the disorder of the times. He therefore chose commissioners by lot to provide for the restitution of what had been seized by violence during the war, and others with extraordinary jurisdiction to decide cases belonging to the Kenton Weary, and reduce them to as small a number as possible, for the dispatch of which, otherwise, the lives of the litigants could scarcely allow sufficient time. Lust and luxury, from the licence which had long prevailed, had also grown to an enormous height. He therefore obtained a decree of the Senate, that a woman who formed an union with the slave of another person should be considered a bondwoman herself and that usurers should not be allowed to take proceedings at law for the recovery of money lent to young men whilst they lived in their father's family, not even after their fathers were dead. In other affairs, from the beginning to the end of his government, he conducted himself with great moderation and clemency. He was so far from dissembling the obscurity of his extraction that he frequently made mention of it himself. When some affected to trace his pedigree to the founders of Reate and a companion of Hercules, whose monument is still to be seen on the Salarian road, he laughed at them for it. And he was so little fond of external and adventitious ornaments that, on the day of his triumph, being quite tired of the length and tediousness of the procession, he could not forbear saying he was rightly served for having in his old age been so silly as to desire a triumph, as if it was either due to his ancestors or had ever been expected by himself. Nor would he for a long time accept of the tribunician authority or the title of father of his country, and in regard to the custom of searching those who came to salute him, he dropped it even in the time of the civil war. He bore with great mildness the freedom used by his friends, the satirical allusions of advocates and the petulance of philosophers. Licinius Mucianus, who had been guilty of notorious acts of lewdness, but, presuming upon his great services, treated him very rudely, he reproved only in private, and when complaining of his conduct to a common friend of theirs, he concluded with these words, However, I am a man. Salvius Liberalis, in pleading the cause of a rich man under prosecution, presuming to say, what is it to Caesar if Hipparchus possesses a hundred millions of sesterces? He commended him for it. Demetrius, the cynic philosopher who had been sentenced to banishment, meeting him on the road, and refusing to rise up or salute him, nay, snarling at him in scurrilous language, he only called him a cur. He was little disposed to keep up the memory of affronts or quarrels, nor did he harbour any resentment on account of them. He made a very splendid marriage for the daughter of his enemy Vitellius, and gave her, besides, a suitable fortune and equipage. 
being in a great consternation after he was forbidden the court in the time of Nero, and asking those about him what he should do, or whither he should go, one of those whose office it was to introduce people to the emperor, thrusting him out, bid him go to Morbonia. But when this same person came afterwards to beg his pardon, he only vented his resentment in nearly the same words. He was so far from being influenced by suspicion or fear to seek the destruction of any one that, when his friends advised him to beware of Metius Pomposianus, because it was commonly believed, on his nativity being cast, that he was destined by fate to the empire, he made him consul, promising for him that he would not forget the benefit conferred. It will scarcely be found that so much as one innocent person suffered in his reign, unless in his absence, and without his knowledge, or at least contrary to his inclination, and when he was imposed upon. Although Helvidius Priscus was the only man who presumed to salute him on his return from Syria by his private name of Vespasian, and, when he came to be praetor, omitted any mark of honour to him, or even any mention of him in his edicts, yet he was not angry, until Helvidius proceeded to inveigh against him with the most scurrilous language. Though he did indeed banish him, and afterwards ordered him to be put to death, yet he would gladly have saved him notwithstanding, and accordingly dispatched messengers to fetch back the executioners, and he would have saved him had he not been deceived by a false account brought that he had already perished. He never rejoiced at the death of any man, nay he would shed tears and sigh at the just punishment of the guilty. The only thing deservedly blamable in his character was his love of money for, not satisfied with reviving the imposts which had been repealed in the time of Galba, he imposed new and onerous taxes, augmented the tribute of the provinces, and doubled that of some of them. He likewise openly engaged in a traffic which is discreditable even to a private individual, buying great quantities of goods for the purpose of retailing them again to advantage. Nay, he made no scruple of selling the great offices of the state to candidates, and pardons to persons under prosecution, whether they were innocent or guilty. It is believed that he advanced all the most rapacious among the procurators to higher offices, with the view of squeezing them after they had acquired great wealth. He was commonly said to have used them as sponges, because it was his practice, as we may say, to wet them when dry, and squeeze them when wet." It is said that he was naturally extremely covetous, and was upbraided with it by an old herdsman of his, who, upon the emperor's refusing to enfranchise him gratis, which on his advancement he humbly petitioned for, cried out, that the fox changed his hair, but not his nature. On the other hand, some are of opinion that he was urged to his rapacious proceedings by necessity, and the extreme poverty of the treasury and exchequer, of which he took public notice in the beginning of his reign, declaring that no less than four hundred thousand millions of sesterces were wanting to carry on the government. This is the more likely to be true, because he applied to the best purposes what he procured by bad means. His liberality, however, to all ranks of people was excessive. He made up to several senators the estate required by law to qualify them for that dignity, relieving likewise such men of consular rank as were poor, with a yearly allowance of five hundred thousand sesterces, and rebuilt, in a better manner than before, several cities in different parts of the empire, which had been damaged by earthquakes or fires. 
he was a great encourager of learning and the liberal arts. He first granted to the Latin and Greek professors of rhetoric the yearly stipend of a hundred thousand sesterces each out of the exchequer. He also bought the freedom of superior poets and artists, and gave a noble gratuity to the restorer of the cone of Venus, and to another artist who repaired the Colossus. Someone offering to convey some immense columns into the capital at a small expense by a mechanical contrivance, he rewarded him very handsomely for his invention, but would not accept his service, saying, Suffer me to find maintenance for the poor people. In the games celebrated when the stage scenery of the theatre of Marcellus was repaired, he restored the old musical entertainments. He gave Apollinaris, the tragedian, four hundred thousand sesterces, and to Terpinus and Diodorus, the harpers, two hundred thousand. To some a hundred thousand, and the least he gave to any of the performers was forty thousand, besides many golden crowns. He entertained company constantly at his table, and often in great state, and very sumptuously, in order to promote trade. As in the Saturnalia he made presents to the men which they were to carry away with them, so did he to the women upon the calends of March, notwithstanding which he could not wipe off the disrepute of his former stinginess. The Alexandrians called him constantly Caibiosactes, a name which had been given to one of their kings who was sordidly avaricious. Nay, at his funeral, Favo, the principal mimic, personating him and imitating, as actors do, both his manner of speaking and his gestures, asked aloud of the procurators how much his funeral and the procession would cost, and being answered ten millions of sesterces, he cried out, Give him but a hundred thousand sesterces, and they might throw his body into the Tiber, if they would. He was broad-set, strong-limbed, and his features gave the idea of a man in the act of straining himself. In consequence, one of the city wits, upon the emperors desiring him to say something droll respecting himself, facetiously answered, I will, when you have done relieving your bowels. He enjoyed a good state of health, though he used no other means to preserve it than repeated friction, as much as he could bear, on his neck and other parts of his body, in the tennis court attached to the baths, besides fasting one day in every month. His method of life was commonly this. After he became emperor, he used to rise very early, often before daybreak. Having read over his letters, and the briefs of all the departments of the government offices, he admitted his friends, and while they were paying him their compliments, he would put on his own shoes and dress himself with his own hands. Then, after the dispatch of such business as was brought before him, he rode out, and afterwards retired to repose, lying on his couch with one of his mistresses, of whom he kept several after the death of Kynis. Coming out of his private apartments, he passed to the bath, and then entered the supper-room. They say he was never more good-humoured and indulgent than at that time, and therefore his attendants always seized that opportunity when they had any favour to ask. At supper, and indeed at other times, he was extremely free and jocose, for he had humour but of a low kind, and he would sometimes use indecent language, such as is addressed to young girls about to be married. Yet there are some things related of him not void of ingenious pleasantry, amongst which are the following. Being once reminded by Mestrius Florus that plaustra was a more proper expression than plostra, he the next day saluted him by the name of Flaurus.
a certain lady pretending to be desperately enamoured of him, he was prevailed upon to admit her to his bed, and after he had gratified her desires, he gave her four hundred thousand sesterces. When his steward desired to know how he would have the sum entered in his accounts, he replied, Four Vespasians being seduced. He used Greek verses very wittily, speaking of a tall man who had enormous parts, Maxi Bibas, Cradon Dolikoskion Enkos, still shaking as he strode his vast long spear, and of Kerylus, a freedman, who being very rich had begun to pass himself off as freeborn, to elude the exchequer at his decease, and assumed the name of Larches, he said, O Larchais, Larchais, Apan Apothanais, Althes ex Archais, Esai Kyrilos. Ah, Larches, Larches, when thou art no more, thou'lt Kerylus be called, just as before. He chiefly affected wit upon his own shameful means of raising money, in order to wipe off the odium by some joke, and turn it into ridicule. One of his ministers, who was much in his favour, requesting of him a stewardship for some person, under pretence of being his brother, he deferred granting him his petition, and in the meantime sent for the candidate, and having squeezed out of him as much money as he had agreed to give his friend at court, he appointed him immediately to the office. The minister, soon after renewing his application, "'You must,' said he, "'find another brother, for the one you adopted is in truth mine.' Suspecting once during a journey that his mule-driver had alighted to shoe his mules only in order to have an opportunity for allowing a person they met, who was engaged in a lawsuit, to speak to him, he asked him how much he got for shoeing his mules, and insisted on having a share of the profit. When his son Titus blamed him for even laying a tax upon urine, he applied to his nose a piece of the money he received in the first instalment, and asked him if it stunk, and he replying no, and yet, said he, it is derived from urine. Some deputies, having come to acquaint him that a large statue, which would cost a vast sum, was ordered to be erected for him at the public expense, he told them to pay it down immediately, holding out the hollow of his hand, and saying, there was a base ready for the statue. Not even when he was under the immediate apprehension and peril of death could he forbear jesting, for when, among other prodigies, the mausoleum of the Caesars suddenly flew open, and a blazing star appeared in the heavens, one of the prodigies, he said, concerned Julia Calvina, who was of the family of Augustus, and the other, the king of the Parthians, who wore his hair long. And when his distemper first seized him, I suppose, said he, I shall soon be a god. In his ninth consulship, being seized, while in Campania, with a slight indisposition, and immediately returning to the city, he soon afterwards went thence to Cutiliae, and his estates in the country about Reate, where he used constantly to spend the summer. Here, though his disorder much increased, and he injured his bowels by too free use of the cold waters, he nevertheless attended to the dispatch of business, and even gave audience to ambassadors in bed. At last, being taken ill of a diarrhoea, to such a degree that he was ready to faint, he cried out, An emperor ought to die standing upright. In endeavouring to rise, he died in the hands of those who were helping him up, upon the 8th of the calends of July, 24th of June, being sixty-nine years, one month, and seven days old. All are agreed that he had such confidence in the calculations on his own nativity, and that of his sons, 
that after several conspiracies against him, he told the Senate that either his sons would succeed him or nobody. It is said likewise that he once saw in a dream a balance in the middle of the porch of the Palatine house exactly poised, in one scale of which stood Claudius and Nero, in the other himself and his sons. The event corresponded to the symbol, for the reigns of the two parties were precisely of the same duration. End of Vespasian <laughs>